Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Professor Buzzkill. This is the first special episode we've ever released. Professor Buzzkill is one of the top history podcasters in all of podcasting. He is a trailblazer when it comes to the art of podcasting and the art of putting history together with podcasting. So we have taped a special episode for you where we asked each other 10 questions about history, about studying history, about podcasting, about books, and so on and so forth. So we hope you enjoy this episode. It's also available on his channel, on Professor Buzzkill, across social media, and of course on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Before we start our interview with him, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Now, without further ado, here's our special interview and our special episode with Professor Buzzkill. So hello and welcome to Professor Buzzkill. Well, it's such a, a treat to be on this sort of joint episode yeah. um, for a couple of reasons. One is because it's nice to just talk to another podcaster, but it's also nice for me because I spend so much of my time interviewing people, not only for this podcast, but for my day job to kind of uh, uh, seed, the, seed the ground a little bit and uh, yeah. uh, uh, throw it out to uh, another um, interviewer to listen to how you do your interviews and to just explore this medium that we're both involved in and both enjoying. That's right. And, and both of our audiences can start to, well, I should say each of our audiences can start hmm. following the other's uh, podcast and, and go from there. And we should tell folks that what we're doing here is we're going to ask each other. We decided in secret to <laughs> write 10 questions each for the other person and that we, neither of us knows which one we're going to, which ones we're going to get. And we're going to ask them back and forth uh, to each other, which I think I, I think the questions, I hope the questions are going to be a mix of what podcasting is like, but also what history is like and how history and podcasting work together. Yeah, so that, it'll be a good. That's what I planned also. So that's good. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. That's what I planned yeah, so you didn't, you didn't write me any baseball questions, which is depressing, but you know, that's how oh, we goes. can talk baseball too. I didn't even know you were a baseball fan. So oh, we can absolutely. Talk baseball. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, one of my questions is about that in your career, but we're going to keep that quiet until the end. That's my 10th question. Okay. So, so buzz killers and actual fans, we're going to go back and forth. So, um, so why, what do you want to do? Let me so let, yeah, let's just, uh, uh, the first thing I would just would do before we even get into our 10 questions, let's just explain the two shows here. So, okay. uh, just talk about, uh, talk about professor buzzkill and how you, um, came up with the, the name Professor Buzzkill and also the show and um, how uh, the show evolved into what it is today. Okay. Let me first introduce Professor Buzzkill as a, as a show and as a concept. It's a show that's been around for five years. In fact, we're in our sixth year. I started it in the early, relatively early days of podcasting because I was changing careers and my students had always called me Professor Buzzkill. They would come in before class with these things they had pulled off the internet, you know, did Churchill say this, did this, is this true? I found this on an email. And of course I was always saying, no, that's a myth. That's a myth. That's a myth. That's a myth. But then in class, I started to use those myths as a, a starting point or a hook to expand. Okay, well, let's look at the Munich crisis in world war two and what 
all that mean, you know? So I, I realized that it was a way to get students' attention and sort of keep their attention on the important thing, not on the myth. And then they could go home and over Thanksgiving when their nutty uncle says, you know, blah, 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 they can say, well, no, actually that's not true. That's a very common myth. And here's the blah, 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 and here's the background. And they can, they, they can, can be really, the star uh, of the dinner table. Absolutely. <laughs> they can be they, the star can, of the dinner table. We, we, we thought about subtitling it, roast your relatives, but we didn't. <laughs> That's good. Roast and, your uncle. Right, um, and, and we've been, we've been, I think, very successful. We're one of the top history podcasts in terms of numbers, and I'm having a blast. So yeah, tell, us I, about, tell us about your wonderful podcast, which I yeah, it, it's my uh, it's my pleasure to do that. But but I am I, amazed at how well your podcast does. You oh, have wow. such a great wow. following and uh, so many followers on social media. It's really fantastic, and uh, I listen to it, and it's really a lot of fun because um, because myths are just not helpful. No, and, no, no. Um, so it's great that that you're doing the myth busting because, um, you know, if you think about it, probably um, ninety percent of people out there have at least one myth that they hold as truth in their head, or maybe more. Maybe everybody has one. Oh, well, sure, and and so, I still have. You know, sure, I, absolutely. I have, I have to always double check. Absolutely. So it's great that you're focused on doing that. Um, uh, uh, my show um, is much newer and has many fewer followers, and um, is one that I didn't. Um, I don't think ever really planned on doing, but I um, have a big reading habit. I read a ton of history books, and um, I think there was a point not that long ago, maybe six months ago, where I said to myself, you know, I wonder if there'd be a way to do more with this hobby, to um, bring all the books that I'm reading um, and what's been kind of stored in my head here out into a more uh, a broad audience and a and a space where I could actually do some good with it because mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. the reading thing I guess became sort of like an OCD type hobby for me where I was just reading page after page after page and that's great and helpful and it helped me in my day job as a news reporter because you have a great background on what's going on um, and how things have uh, developed and um, evolved into where they are now with the historical background. That's something that I don't know that a ton of people have in any field. Um, so it was really a lot of, uh, it was always helpful for me to have a historic, uh, to have a historical background. And I've always loved politics and my history professors in college and po uh, political professors in college and things like that. But um, it was just fun for me to start to get this idea of, boy, maybe I could do a little bit more with the reading and make a show and help people understand the um, the way things have evolved in this country in very complicated and sometimes messy fashion. And so to 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 be able to bring um, history to what we're thinking about every day, especially in times as complicated as these, although times I guess are always complicated. That's one thing you learn from history. Yeah. But, to, but you know, there's no, there's no dear dim past where everything was <laughs> uh, nice and neat and, and clean and everything was simple. That certainly doesn't exist. You, and you learn that. Um, but um, I have a great time interviewing and, and I interview a ton for my day job. And um, this was just sort of a natural fit for me. So I, Got a logo made from a friend of mine. I got some intro music made from a friend of mine. And, and here it was. Uh, you know, the great thing about podcasting is it doesn't take a whole lot to start up. But I will say it does take a lot to keep it going. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that's kind of how the show started. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, the, you know, the authors have been willing to come on and do it. And one of the things is I, 
um, I take a bit of a different approach than you because you do a lot of editing and a lot of precision. And I do want to ask you about that. Um, but I just kind of do an interview and I spend and 45 minutes with somebody, interview them. Very few edits are made, um, almost none, um, unless there's a siren that goes by or we have to stop for something or something like that. I put the intro music on and off it goes out into the world. I'm, um, uh, that's just the way I've chosen to do it. Um, I don't know that either is right or wrong, but that, that's right. just the way that I've decided. So anyway, that's, that's how Axel Bank Reports history and today have started. And I have to thank the guests that have come on too, because uh, oh, sure. uh, they have been, um, even for a new show, best-selling authors have been willing to come on and that's really cool. So yeah, anyway. That, 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 that really makes the show and it makes my show too when I'm able to get them on. Well, this leads into my first question for you. Can we start with the questions? Please. Then? Yeah, we got 10 questions. We'll go back and forth. And we haven't told each, any, either of no, them. We haven't told a, the questions. So. It's, a complete, it's a complete secret. Um, your show really is, why I like it, why I was so drawn to it, is it's really about reading. Yes, there are a lot of book shows out there, a lot of pl political shows, a lot of history shows. But you, it's very obvious that you have been reading, and you mentioned this in the OCD comment a moment ago, <laughs> you've been reading serious books a long time. How? My first question is, how young were you when you started reading these serious so, books? That's a great question. Um, uh, growing up, I was into the, the, short of, the sort of quick hit sports books um yeah. the ones that like young boys tend to be involved in although i don't think that they should just be marketed to boys to be clear on that i think everybody should read sports books because they're great lessons um and because everybody likes sports but but i guess for whatever reason i got into those like those really you know those matt christopher books and the, the books about kids where something extraordinary would happen to them while they're playing the kid hits 50 home runs in a row or something like that. Um, and, and, but, but reading, I never really considered it a big part of um, my um, sort of my main interests. I guess I was off doing other things, but um, I spent a lot of time on the subway growing up. I spent a oh. lot of time. Yeah. I spent a lot of time um, going from the Bronx um, to Manhattan for high school. And when you spend 45, 50 minutes on a subway, um, I think um, I remember reading Time Magazine. I remember reading Newsweek. And I believe that the first serious book that I read was Evan Thomas's book about Bobby Kennedy. Oh, but, yeah. it, but it also could have been, for whatever reason, a book about the killing of John Benet Ramsey. That was a big story at the time in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. And I would read these books on the subway, but I, I'm pretty sure it was the RFK book. And I just fell in love. I, I did. Yeah. I fell in love with it and it became something that I was like, Oh, I want to read it. I want to read another one. And it felt, I, I remember feeling very good about opening up the book and holding the book and what a new book feels like in your hands. And you start to turn the pages and get involved in, um, this person's life and to find out about it. So um, I remember that. But then I will say um, it really took on a life of its own in in '02 when Robert Caro's Master of the Senate came out, and I was assigned to read the first chapter for a class on legislative behavior. Um, right, I'm okay. still in, yeah, I'm this still in touch the with the, the part of the biography of LBJ. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Right. Master of the Senate, but about uh, in the years of Lyndon Johnson series by Robert Caro. And I was just transfixed by the first chapter of that book. I, I was mm -hmm. just, 
stunned by how great it was and how great the writing was. And it was a hobby ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, let's take, let me take you quick, just quickly back. Pardon me. Please. Let me with a follow-up question, just take you quickly back to that subway. You very cleverly avoided giving your age. What was the no, actual I, I age you I'm were riding? To... First of all, riding the subway. Second of all, reading time and Newsweek on the subway. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Great question. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't hide it on purpose. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was a, um, I was a high school student. And so I remember, I believe I took a school bus to school in eighth grade, but rode the subway back. Uh-huh. But then in high school, starting in ninth grade, so I was 14, I was going back and forth on the subway to and from school, 45 minutes a day. Now, I did ride with a friend or two, but not every day. Sometimes someone would you know, not be at school or yeah, different, sure. start different times or whatever. But I um, was 14 in 97. So right. Time and Newsweek probably started at some point in there. And I always knew I wanted to get into the news business. So this seemed like a way to beef up and to really know what was going on time and Newsweek and then starting to read books after that. And it just became a, a lifelong hobby. My goodness, I'm 37 now. So it's 23 years um, since those early days on the subway. <laughs> a lot happens on that subway. You know, reading is a good way to, you know, put yourself, you know, put your head down and not uh, and not think about what's going on around you. Well, it was before iPods and iPhones and you couldn't. Yeah, get, good point. Yeah, I, I, probab- I probably had a disc man yeah. <laughs> and I probably had a disc man. And when the iPods first started, I probably in the early 2000s, like maybe in the year 2000 or 99 or 2000, there was a big crime surge on the subways because of that. Um, oh, it, wow. it was actually probably the main reason for it. Everyone wanted iPods. So anyway, uh, can, I, can I give you your first question? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Um, so you're, of course, Professor Buzzkill. Uh-huh. So in what ways is teaching history to a class similar or different from trying to bring it history to a podcast audience? Well, in some ways it's, it's similar because I've always, always from the very beginning when I started teaching, tried to have a hook at the beginning to get people interested, not, not just walk in and say, okay, let's talk about Tacitus and the Roman empire. Uh, you know, something try, I, I try not to make it overly dramatic or overly simplified, but often with say there'd be a movie out and I could say, you know, there's, there are endless World War II movies coming out. And I would talk about D-Day by saying, well, if you've been out and you've, you've seen Saving, uh, Saving Lions Privates, then you know this about Omaha and then this is what, but this is what really happened. So that helped a lot. It's different because of course, you don't have to, and yet you have to constantly engage with students nowadays. I'm constantly saying every two sentences, three sentences, are you with me? Okay, well, I just said something you probably never heard before. What is that? What do you think that means? And with podcasts, of course, you don't, you don't do that. Uh, that, that, that back and forth becomes... Right. A, they, but, they can't ask questions in real time. Right. Know? But I think, I think both types of delivery formats have helped. Well, each delivery format has helped the other. I don't, I don't know if I've become a better teacher because I'm also a podcaster, but I know that it was e- prob- probably easier for me to start a podcast because I was already used to teaching and talking more or less, uh, uh, you know, more well, talking in coherent sentences and delivering a lecture. Do you feel as comfortable behind a mic as you do in front of the class? 
Oh, it's so much. It's, it's so much more comfortable behind the mic now. <laughs> oh, it's a thousand times more comfortable. I, Is it because I, the eyes are not looking at you? I, I, I guess. I guess that when I'm when I'm teaching, which is not all the time now uh, a days, uh, I'm terrified, terrified, absolutely terrified. Maybe that's because I'm I'm, a, the, I'm of an older generation than you are, and, and I used to be hyper confident when I was younger, and maybe I'm starting to question my my abilities uh, as I get older, but podcasting is a lot easier. <laughs> Interesting. I think it's, I, it's, I think it's a lot, a lot easier. And you're your own boss. Uh, all right. I'll ask well, the second yeah. question <laughs> at some level. I'll, uh, I'll ask the second question and then you can come back. So uh, I'll start the next round here. Um, one of the things I love about your show is that it is so carefully done that you can tell that you put such time into the mechanics of the editing and of the way it sounds and of how precise the language is that you use. Um, and it's just not a style that I, um, that I, I do. I just don't, uh, mm -hmm. it's just not the way I've set up the show. Um, so why do you insist on such diligence in the technical quality of your product? Well, there's an easy answer in one sense. And that when we started off, I, I don't know why I had this, flash of insight, but I decided to do a Kickstarter to raise funds because I knew that equipment would be important. And very fortunately, I live in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is, is one of the big centers for podcasts in the country that lives in the big, biggest podcast distributor is, is here. There are a number of Pittsburgh production companies that do podcasts for worldwide product for, uh, worldwide um, distribution. And I lucked into meeting some podcast engineers who said, we raised a hell of a lot of money on the Kickstarter. I don't even know that they do Kickstarter anymore. It's like a GoFundMe thing. Yeah. Uh, and they said, well, you need to get these microphones and these. And so we spent all the money basically on, on equipment. So that, that's one, one answer. But the, the other thing is we had, a, we had a, I thought no one in the world is going to want to listen to my podcast and listen to me talk about history like I talk about it in a class, no one, you know, so no one's going to want to hear. Uh, we did our very, very first show on the myth of, of J. Edgar Hoover being a crossdresser. I said, so I thought to myself, I didn't know that was a myth, but no, okay. And yeah. <laughs> now and, I do. And, and uh, I that's thought, for another time. Though. The, the only, the only way we're going to get people interested in the show, the only way we get people to listen consistently is to, you know, we'll bring in a panel, we'll bring in some comedians, some this and that, and you know, make it fun and fun. And, fun. and we did that. And it was a tremendous failure. The first, uh, I mean, it wasn't anybody's fault that the, these people were doing what they were supposed to do, but people, the, my early fans started to saying, started to say, well, actually we want to hear more from you. We want to hear more from the professor. Mm -hmm. We don't want to hear relatively lame jokes about J. Edgar Hoover's cross-dressing. And so that's when I thought, oh, okay. And I was very heartened by that because what it meant, what it said to me was, no, I was wrong. People don't need, they don't need the joke just to get to the serious stuff. They want the serious stuff. So that, that raised my opinion of sort of the American uh, public, uh, uh, the audience's you know, appetite for serious things. And then, what I'm getting to is then, then I decided I had to, because I tried various ways of making general outlines and just talking off my top of my head, and they were all terrible. And so from then on, and this was 2015 onwards, my shows were absolutely scripted word for word except except when i'm interviewing someone and even then i have a strong outline a, a detailed outline. 
any any of the shows you hear where I'm I'm giving all the information or we're doing a quote or no, quote or no quote show or a short show or something like that or it's just me, it is literally word for word script and I try I have tried over the years to become more of a voice actor than I was ever before. So I hope it doesn't sound like I'm reading, but it was not only easier in terms of getting more stuff done uh, and without mistakes and not having to edit it 60,000 times, but I, when I, it just, uh, the analysis is better when I write it out. So my question for you, I seem to be obsessed with your youth now because the first thing I asked you was how old you were and when we're doing the subway, is how much your dad's career and people, your listeners may not even know because you're very modest about it. Dad was, a, is, was and is a very important New York media figure, runs a show called Bronx Talk yeah. in New York. How did that affect your move into, into serious media and then into journalism? Um, he never one time said, you should do what I do. Never, wow. not one time for, 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 you know, and I give him a lot of credit for that because I think there is a natural tendency for fathers to want their sons to sort of take their path and then surpass what they have done. Um, and maybe yeah. that's a natural way psychology works, but he never one time said, you should be in media like me. You should go out there and, and talk to people all day. Um, but I was around it a lot. Um, yeah. There are pictures of me at three and four years old in at the basement of a school that he used to work at behind the microphone, learning how microphones work and talking into them. Uh, I was always around when he was calling basketball games. I would be sitting next to him at the scorer's table, uh, keeping score on a whiteboard for him so he knew how many points all the players had. I was always sitting in and watching him do his show, Bronx Talk. Um, I ended up getting, I ended up working at the TV station that he was working at because I found myself interested um, in it. But I will say um, the moment that changed my life. I'll never forget it. I was sitting um, at 30 Rock. My dad was a producer at WNBC. Mm -hmm. I was sitting at 30 Rock and, you know, the, the news station, uh, NBC4 in New York. And I was sitting there looking at the internal monitor that they have that you could change the channel and see all the different feeds that were coming in or going out. Um, so one of the things you could see was all the different cameras in the studio and how all the cameras were set up and pointed at the anchors while they were reading. And I got this sort of behind the scenes feel of what the news business was like. And I mean, if you ever have an epiphany in life, this was it. I said to yeah. myself, as I was flipping those channels and looking at all these feeds coming in and out, the weather radar, the different cameras in the studio, stories coming in from the field, live shots, reporters waiting to do a live shot. And I was, I mean, I'm telling you, it was like that. It was like my life changed at that moment. And I knew from then on to this day what I wanted to be doing. Well, that's great. That's Ser great. Seriously, I, you know, how many moments do you have like that in life? It was like, bam, I want to do this forever. And, yeah. and, I, and I do. And I want to be a news reporter forever. I just, I love, I love it so much. Um, all right. I'll, I'll, do, uh, I'll do my next one here. Uh, why do you think podcasts are such a good platform for doing history? What is it about the medium that lends itself to exploring and explaining a story from our past? I think podcasts and the way they've developed and the, way, the ones that seem to be the most popular and get the most listeners are lengthy. They're at least a half an hour. 
And they almost all, all the good ones anyway, go in depth. And one of the biggest things we like to say on the show and we like to talk about constantly, it's a drum we beat constantly, is that soundbite history, history that can be explained in a sentence or half a sentence or even worse, a slogan, is terrible. And it leads to all these misunderstandings, which then lead to misunderstandings about other things, particularly current affairs. And so with history, it's good to be able to talk about something that seems awfully narrow for a half an hour. And you can, re- you can get into the weeds, and I mean that in a positive sense, you know, and give people detail. And, and I'm hoping that, and I think this is uh, borne out by the fact that the show is popular, that people, when they listen to them, they go, oh, 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 things are really deeper and more complicated. And they, you know, in our, on all of our own lives, things are tremendously complicated. You've got bills to pay, you've got kids to raise, you've got, the, you know, you've got, you're juggling a thousand things. And, but for some reason, we as a culture seem to want to have history give us only one answer. So-and-so was a good person, or so-and-so was a bad person, or this happened because of one reason, this happened because of another reason, you know, and it's never that way. And so I think you need the longer form of a podcast in order to get through the material so that people will understand it. Yeah, you know, I also think that it really helps um, it's sort of the magic of radio. It's the intimacy yeah. of the medium that, you know, you're, the headphones are on or they're listening in their kitchen or something like that. And there's a real, even though it's recorded, there's a real relationship that the audience builds with the characters in the show, in this case, the host. Yeah. And, and also a lot, a lot of my listeners are commuters and, and mm-hmm. they, you know, it's like a little course for them, a little learning experience on the way to and from work. Yeah, it's a wonderful medium in that sense, in that people can really fine tune what they're interested in and find a great show that they um, that they can commute with, but also do something positive during that that commute. It's really cool. Uh, yeah, and I'm finding, and I think this is true across the podcast world, that during COVID, and I'm sorry that your your show sort of started during COVID, podcast numbers are down because people mm. aren't commuting as much. Streaming movies numbers are, way, are through the roof because everyone's home streaming Netflix or Hulu or whatever. But podcast numbers are down, but I hope that that will uh, rebound. Yeah, for that, a lot of reasons, yeah. You know, we t- we, we're telling our listeners that you and I didn't share these questions beforehand, but they're going to start thinking we did because my next question for you is almost exactly <laughs> along these lines. Yeah. And, and that is, why did you decide to start a podcast, okay, rather than a TV show or something that's more along what I think of as your generation's age uh, demographic or whatever you call it, like a YouTube channel or something like that? Yeah, so I, I, podcasters as people my age and above, but uh, but you're you're not, and you're 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 dealing with that those two generations, older people and younger people. Um, for me, it was. Um it was about the ease of getting it set up. And also it would fit into my, the rest of my life. And, you know, I work a nine hour shift every day and TV news requires even more hours than that, but that's sort of when I'm assigned to be there. Um, But of course I spend other time, you know, more time working on it too. Um, So I needed something that would fit in. And once you add video and once you add, a more complicated setup, that time starts to grow exponentially. 
So yeah, for me, yeah. doing an audio podcast was something that I could start easily with just a few, with just a few bucks, and then um, uh, I wouldn't have to worry about the visual element of it. Um, yeah. And that was really big because once the visual side comes in, and I know this from 15 years of doing TV, you, your your commitment goes from you know from one to five. Yeah. Um, you know, or one to seven or eight because the visual part, and then you have to do more editing. It's just a whole different thing. Um, so for me, the podcast thing was something that I could start easily um, and, and not have to do the, uh, the sort of legwork and the technical work that TV requires. So for me, it was just the right medium because I could fit it into the rest of my life in the way that I chose to approach the show. Yeah, well, we and I, I can chime in with that perfectly because we have a YouTube channel, but I can't keep up with it. So uh, it, you have to make the show and then you make a video from the show, a lot, sort of like a Ken Burns video. And I've had to stop because it was just it was way, way too much work. Yeah, the, the, the thing that takes me the most time is the preview clips that I put on Twitter yeah. and, yeah, and yeah, Instagram. Yeah. That takes about an hour and a half for each episode. Um, yeah. I have to do two of them today, so... Um, all right, let, let me go to the next question. What process do you go through for deciding a show topic? Well, I had a whole backlog of a bunch of myths that I already knew, right, that I wanted to bust. Uh, but then gradually, as I started to interview more historians, they would recommend other people doing other work. And so it, it was. it sort of became just a by hook or by crook, we decided to do certain shows at certain times. But then recently this year, especially this year, with so many things happening, current events, the, the Confederate statues coming down, uh, the COVID-related being sort of a parallel of the 1918 epidemic, a pandemic, uh, and, and all that sort of thing, I'm really starting to think more about choosing topics that are related to what is going on or what is about to go on. Mm. So when we did those Confederate monument shows earlier this year, our numbers went through the roof. When we did that, we did two shows on the 1918 pandemic and they went through the roof. So for instance, my October shows, there's one on the electoral college. There's one on fake news. Uh, there's one on, uh, there, there are, there's, they're sort of geared toward the election. Because uh, not only do will that get me more listeners, people have asked for that. Okay, people have especially asked for give us the history of fake news in American journalism. We just recorded a I recorded an interview with a great historian about that. So there's I'm, a wonderful book out. Uh, just real quick, there's a wonderful book out by Harold Holzer that uh, describes every president's battles with the press is really right, interesting right. but anyway go ahead please so, so i'm trying now to make it less of a, an hist, a, a historian's show and more of a mixture of of historians and but historians talking about what's going on now or talking mm -hmm. about stuff that people can actually use a, as a background as contextualization for the the stuff they see and read in the news and the daily news in the news business, that's called a news peg. It's the it's the right. answer to the question: Why are we doing the story today? Yeah. Um, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. In interesting answer. Uh, your first interview, your first show may not have been your first interview show. Oh shit! 
Your first interview was with Kate Brower, the author of Team of Five, The President's Club in the mm -hmm. Age of Trump. Now that book's about more or less about retired presidents, you know, how, to, how they, they relate to each other. Why did you choose that author and that book? That's a great question. So um, my favorite kind of history is presidential history. So mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of start on friendly ground. <laughs> you yeah, know, right, if you're the yeah. host of the show, you get to, you get to be the master of, of, of who, um, you know, of who comes on. And I figured I wanted to talk presidential history first. So, um, uh, and I also know Kate's books and Kate's books are fantastic. Right. And um, she's done four or five of them now, one on the vice presidency, one on the residents, the White House residents, one on first ladies, this latest book in the, uh, the president's club in the age of Trump. And the president's club is just about how all the presidents sort of have relationships with each other and how the relationships have sort of risen and fallen as politics changes and as they change. Um, but I, um, uh, so, so that was the first reason is because I know presidential history pretty well. The second reason is because um, I know Kate's books very well. I've read them all. And the third reason is because I know she's a nice person. Oh, <laughs> I know well, she's a go. very, yeah, no, she's a nice person. Um, I'd interacted with her on Twitter a couple of times and she was extremely gracious. And she, uh, I, I, I think direct messaged her or maybe I found her email and emailed her and said, Hey, if you remember me, I'm starting a podcast. I'd love you to be the first guest. Um, and I had written kind of a, a biography of myself and a, and a, um, uh, a, uh, a, a description of what the show and a mission statement would be, mm -hmm. uh, or a mission statement of what the show would be. And she immediately responded almost right away and said, absolutely. It'd be on, I'd be honored to be your first guest. And so she came on and, and um, uh, that show was one of the two most listened to episodes that we have because she is um, really, really good. And, and maybe the fourth reason is because she's media trained. She's done interviews on CNN and for yeah. the New York Times and all these other places. So she knows how to be interviewed and it was just the perfect fit for the, for the, uh, for the first show. And um, I'm definitely going to invite her on again because she really is such a, a pleasure to interview and she really knows so much uh, and has interviewed them all too. That was a big thing too, that she's interviewed the presidents also. Right, so right. that kind of thing you can't, you can't replace. Um, I think media uh, yeah, trained please. is such an important thing. Yeah. Important phrase people don't realize. We just interviewed for, uh, in August, we had Martha Jones on the show, Dr. Martha Jones, whose new book Vanguard about African-American women and, and their, their, their struggles to get the vote. Uh, I actually interviewed her right after she got off of an interview with Hillary Rodham Clinton on, I think a PBS or a CNN special. So she did, she did the interview with, with them and then switched right over to the zoom interview with me. And that mm. just that, just the fact that she had done, she, and she of course did a lot of this stuff in the past. She was media trained or media savvy or media used to be media. It, it made the show go great and also, but most importantly, of course, her content was fabulous, but it certainly helps with the editing because then it becomes less of an editing job. Yeah, right. Um, that is one, of, that was one of the goals of my show, which, or that is maybe the main goal of the show, which is that um, it, I bring a little bit of a different perspective to it because I'm an, I'm an interviewer for a mass audience and I do stories right. for a mass audience as opposed to two professors talking, which is great and fine. And you certainly know more than I do. And professors know much more than me about what has happened and also how to um, sort of process the content in a little bit of a different way. But 
that also the reverse then is also true that I do things a little bit differently. Yeah. And so yeah. the hook of the show is just sort of that this is an interview done for a mass audience because that's just what I'm trained in and what I do every day. Um, you know, neither is right or wrong. It's just, you know, it's just the way I approach the show. Um, all right, let me do the next question. Okay. How do you evaluate whether a show met its goals? Ooh, that's a toughie. First of all, we don't get near, I don't know how this is going with you, but we don't get nearly as much comment from listeners as I'd like to get. I don't, I get almost none. It's really surprising. I get, you know, very, if, if I get five comments on across, across Twitter and Facebook and email, I'm stunned about one episode. Uh, So I'm, I'm gauging it by the numbers of downloads. And, and for those of you out there who don't know much about the background of podcasting downloads is the number of listens by individual people. And also by the number of, you know, shares on Twitter and things like that, or shares on Facebook, finding that that Facebook is a much more uh, uh, effective platform for me than, than Twitter or Instagram, probably, probably because of an age and generation thing. But it's, it, uh, I, well, when certain groups, for instance, if I do a show about a certain topic that has contemporary political comment, Sometimes certain groups will jump on and flame me, but that's even that's pretty rare. In fact, I'd welcome a lot more of it, you know, say because of course they don't know what they're talking about, and I'm the one who's doing it. But but generally, it has to. It's it's purely just a numbers game. And when we have sponsors, which we've had in the past, you know, they don't want to hear about oh so and so likes the show or or we got this famous historian. They want to know how many people listen to the show. So unfortunately, in a way, I'm getting yeah. good information for, uh, of one type, but not the kind of information that I would want or that you would want. But do you ever sit there and think to yourself, you know, I didn't quite get that the way I wanted to, or maybe I should have said this a little bit more clearly, because I know that I do all the time. Yeah, sometimes, and I'll even cancel a show. We, we had a show, I can't give away the topic because uh, the person will, will know and I'll be embarrassed. Uh, where the, the the expert showed up, not only unprepared but way out of date in terms of the the research uh, that's been done on this topic, and I did the interview and I knew almost immediately while the interview was going on this isn't going to work, and then my sponsor said that was a terrible show. What you know? What were you thinking? Your, your questions were terrible. His answers were terrible. Her answers were terrible. Uh, we're not going to run our ad on that sh- that episode. So. I, I just I that answers the question out. right there. I, yeah, I had to turn around and say to the person, "I'm sorry," and I, and I blame myself. I said I, I I should have looked into this more. So interesting. I've had to I've had to cancel shows before they go out because they they just weren't good enough. But that's fairly rare. I I like to think that I do my homework in getting the right person for the right topic. Hmm. All right, fire away. You're up. Yeah, my turn. You're up. Why? Why? Why, why, why is presidential history your favorite type of history? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I know that I first got into it when my Aunt Linda, who is a listener of the show, and she'll probably hear this. Hi, Aunt um, Linda. Hello. She got me, I don't even know if she remembers this. She got me a poster that had all the president's faces on it. 
mm-hmm. and the time, the time period that they served, you know, the, the years that they served. And I remember just gazing at it um, and staring at it. And then there was also one other feature. Um, the presidents that died in office were shaded in blue and the presidents who were assassinated were shaded in red. Yikes. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the best thing for a kid <laughs> no, to see. No, no, no. Um, but I remember staring at it. No, that's fine, Aunt Linda. That's, that's okay. Um, uh, I, I recovered. But, well, maybe I didn't recover since I'm here doing the show with a room full of books. Um, but uh, um, the, the, um, I remember then learning about the assassinations and why had, why had Lincoln been shot and who shot him and why had Kennedy been mm-hmm. shot and who shot him. And then I remember seeing the Zapruder film and realizing this was an important person and the power that they had. And then I think I just got into the, the idea that, um, that it really does sometimes take someone in the middle of everything to, to steer the ship. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, some of them are a lot better at it than others. And, right. um, you know, the energy of the president radiates to all of us. It's like a bicycle spoke, you know. So yeah. I think that might just be a way to answer the question, which is, um, I was just fascinated by this one person out of all 330 million of us, I guess back then it might have been 230 million or 245 million. Um, but uh, just the fact that there's one person that gets to have secret service and gets to right um, gets to give the State of the Union and gets to submit bills and gets to talk to other nations and gets to do foreign policy and gets to command the military and gets to um, speak for the nation in a time of difficulty. Um, so that might be, that might be the answer as to why I'm, uh, the answer as to why I'm most interested in presidential well, history. And it is important. It's an important topic. It's not like you're interested in the difference of railway gauges around the world or some sort of small <laughs> minor thing. <laughs> One day, I, my my next my 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 last question might be how you came up with that one railway gauges. That's pretty good. That's a deep pole there. That's what they call a deep pole. It's a deep pole. Um, uh, then I'll ask a, a similar question. Then, um, uh, is there a favorite time period that you have to cover? Well, that is a very good question, and that's getting more interesting the further along I do the show. My research. My professional research was, sorry, my professional research in academic history was in Britain and Ireland during the 1830s and 1840s. And that's what my first book was on and blah, 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 blah. And, but trust me, no one wants to hear about the, you know, the, the, what was known as the appropriation of excess revenues from the Church of Ireland to secular purposes, right? The, that, that, that bill of 1833 doesn't win me very many friends, conversation friends at dinner. But you did memorize it. But I did memorize it. Oh, yeah. I can tell you more about, you know, you, you, people want to commit suicide after listening to me for five minutes on this. So, and, and so it, when, I, when I came to, to, to craft the show, I just go, oh, we'll do all periods of history. But just by, you know, happenstance or whatever, we have concentrated on modern history. And more and more, I've become interested in this period between, well, from, say, 1900 to 1950. 
because so many world-changing things happen, so many awful things happen, and there's, there's so much media attention, and by media I'm including film and television in there, on World War II and on things like that, that I've kind of shifted periods. It's what, not only what happened, but I'm interested in why World War II is presented in the various ways it's presented. Hmm. So, so I don't want to say that I'm, because I'm not a, a research 20th centuryist. I'm a research 19th centuryist, but I'm a podcast and popular history 20th centuryist. Is that, is that, yeah, no. Saying 20th centuryist probably sounds really boring and really nerdy, but that's the way we are. Hey, we all need a job. We all need a title, right? <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Uh, all right, fire away. You're up. Okay, now here, now we're getting into the weeds, folks. You and I have both interviewed Dr. Sarah Mylov, the oh. author of The Cigarette, A Political History, a great book, Buzzkillers, Axel Bankers, go out and buy it. <laughs> did you listen to my show with her? And if you did, how did your interview differ from mine? Uh, see, this is a good reason to <laughs> ask the questions ahead of time, because then I would have. Um, okay. I, I did not know that you'd listened to her, uh, that you had interviewed her. And I'm embarrassed to say that the audio from my side on that episode was wrong, was bad. And I actually apologized to her for it, because when I recorded, I recorded from the wrong mic. Um, and that's something that you learn whenever you start a podcast or any type of show or anything in life that you will make mistakes. So, well, and uh, also I, that I was surprised that in doing all this that the technical aspects of, st of stuff can have such major knock-on effects. Huge. You know, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Just, just minor technical um, things can ruin a show. Yeah, and, and, and I almost didn't release it, but she spent her time and it wasn't yeah. that bad. And it's actually done very well. The show has been downloaded a ton of times. Well, it's a great um, so, book. Just a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. And she was such a gracious guest to come on. And I did apologize her to her about the audio. And I will apologize right now. Uh, so sorry, Professor Milov. But uh, be that as it may, um, unfortunately, I didn't listen to your to your episode with her, and I didn't I didn't realize that there was one. But um, I will say the reason that the the book, the cigarette is so great and there are a few reasons but my maybe the biggest reason that it's so great is that this is this is a product that we are all intimately familiar with in one way or another mm -hmm. and who knew that there was this 125 years or 130 years of history behind the people the effort that has been made to put those things in the hands of everyday Americans yeah to me, that was, it really hammered home like, wow, this is, this is a setup. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that has been done to us. Right. Um, so anyway, it's a great book, and, and I would love to hear your impressions of, of her. Well, and it's of a great the book and of her, yeah. It's, it, by the way, listeners should know, it's, it, the, name, the full title is The Cigarette, A Political History, and that's right. why it's so fascinating. And the book is so good. I did two shows with her in her office at the University of Virginia. This is back when we could travel. I remember those days. Uh, in which we talked about the Surgeon General's 1964 report saying that cigarettes cause cancer. And also what she, and this is what I, this sort of, this conceptual thing, I just love it. It's why, it's one of the reasons I'm not a research historian anymore. I'm just not, not as good at it as, as most people. She has a chapter, maybe a couple chapters on 
the making of the non-smoker. The non-smoker yes, is a sort of type. That was of, a great chapter. Yeah, type of person. And my parents were non-smokers, and I remember in the six, late sixties and seventies, you know, they would not have ashtrays in the house, and when we had parties, which they had all the time, people had to go outside and smoke. Right, and when we went to other people's houses, there were ashtrays everywhere, and on and on and on and on and on, and. Uh, I didn't really think about that as a way of living. It was just the way it was. And the way she analyzes that is just genius. Just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Genius. Yeah, it was brilliant. And, and it, um, it is a sect of people. Non-smokers yeah. had to become, as opposed to the smokers taking charge, it was the right. non-smokers saying, we have a right to live healthily. Yeah. That was a, it was a brilliant piece of analysis. Yes. And, and, it's a, and it was a very, and I lived through enough of it. I mean, I was still in, I was graduate school in England and people were, you could smoke anywhere you wanted still. So I remember, you know, before California, for instance, went smoke free. I certainly remember before New York went smoke free. And I remember. I do too. Them. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember it a little bit. So, yeah. You know, thing it's, it's perhaps the biggest change in social habits, certainly yeah. in my lifetime. But I might argue the cell phone changed social habits. Well, um, that's probably true too. Yeah. But 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 yes, the smoking thing is a big is a big big deal. Um, uh, all right, uh, if you could interview one person in history, who would it be? Oh, in history. Oh, well, let's do let's do let's do the general U.S. history. Oh, U.S. history. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther King. And the reason I say that is because the more I've gotten into trying to understand why he's such an icon, actually the more I've come to admire him. Now we've done several shows on Martin Luther King and one of the ones we did was busting down the myths of how popular he was, the extent that everyone followed him, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the idea that, that within the African-American community, within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, that that it was all everyone was united and all believed the same thing and followed. You know there was a lot of disagreement, discord, and a lot of other important leaders that got forgotten after he after Dr. King's assassination. And the more I've looked into it, the more I have. And usually, when I look into when you look into people, you know you find that become you, the the mist gets stripped away, and you think, well, that's not so good. And then, you know, Patton is tremendously overrated as a as a tank commander, Churchill is tremendously overrated in almost every way possible. I be, I've become to think, I've come to think, and I'm not finished with this by any means, it'll take me years to finish it, that Martin Luther King is actually underrated, and at least to me, and, and that's been a major, that's been a major eye-opener for me. So what question, do you have a, a single question you would oh, ask him? Uh, yes. How in the world could he have given those speeches he gave? Again, this is another big thing of mine, where all we ever hear are the snippets, the inspirational right. snippets. But when you listen to the whole speech, and we, when the riot of the languages, riot is the language of the unheard quote, began flying around the internet during the various disturbances we've had earlier this year, I put out a show where I said, listen to this entire speech. This is like an hour and 10 minute speech. And he talked in detail about the consumer boycotts, about the various uh, aspects of the civil rights uh, uh, work uh, during the, the middle 60s, and on and on and on and on and on, and how there were two Americas. And only at the very end do you get the sort of 
uplifting moments. So how in the world he thought people would sit through an hour-long speech that was, in my rough estimation, 85% technical detail. I mean, I think it's glorious. I listened to it, and it's, a, it's incredible. All these things going on. He's delegating uh, different things to Jesse Jackson or Ralph Abernathy or whoever. And, and it just shows this immense amount of work that, that, that he's doing and all these other people are doing. It's another thing we always stress is that there are, you know, it's never just one person, always a, a large team. And yet he's able to build all that up into a crescendo uh, of, of the things we always hear on, on in soundbite history. And I don't mean to, to cheapen the idea of the great sayings that he's, uh, great things he said in those inspirational moments. But I do mean to say that people really should listen to the full, fuller speeches because you'll get so much more information and you'll get a so much, you'll get a much greater uh, impression and appreciation of what was actually going on. Yeah. Headlines certainly don't, yeah, don't right. serve the whole. Soundbite history, headline yeah. history doesn't, doesn't help us. Um, can I answer my own question real quick? Yeah. Abraham yeah, Lincoln. I didn't, I didn't have that question for you, but. No, no. But, yeah. Real, yeah, real yeah, quick. Yeah. Real quick. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I would ask the question, how were you so strong? Well, that's a good one. I would have asked him, how would you have handled Reconstruction? Good question. Because everyone's yeah, dying to question. know that. Very, yeah, yeah, right. Um, and unfortunately, we'll probably, we'll, we will never know that. But that yeah, would, or, or uh, you know, hey, maybe, you know, the night of April 14th, hey, what do you say we stay home and watch the ball game and not go? Yeah. To or what, maybe we ask the bodyguard to stick around a yeah, little longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then maybe I'll answer. Maybe I'll answer the other question real quick too. My favorite time period to cover is Reconstruction. Um, yeah. So yes, maybe I should have thought a little bit more deeply about that. I probably would ask. Yeah, how would you have handled Reconstruction? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and maybe another question for Lincoln would be: um, Looking back now, of course he can't. But if you could look back, would you have picked someone different to be on your ticket as opposed to Andrew Johnson? Oh yeah. Now Lord. maybe Johnson was needed to win the election, but maybe it wasn't the best choice. Because um, of the Tennessee thing. Yeah, because he yeah. didn't know what he was doing. Um, and he was, uh, well, he, he knew what he was doing and, and he certainly um, revealed himself to be uh, a racist and not particularly helpful. So, uh, all right, um, is it me? You're up, go no, on, please. Yeah. yeah, you're up, yeah. One of your best shows, I think, was where your interview with, by the way, is it Chris McGreal? Chris McGreal, yeah. Okay. Your interview with Chris McGreal, who wrote a book called American Overdose. It's about addiction in, in, in our country and the recent history of addiction. How difficult, now you read the book beforehand, obviously, but how difficult was it to listen to him talk about that topic, to listen to him and analyze it on the show? It it bothered me. That book was a great book. It really bothered me because it's it's so much more extensive than most of us think. But I think actually having to hear someone walk through the analysis would be even more disheartening. Sorry to be such a downer, but I am Professor Busco. Um, first of all, I want to you know Chris was really a very generous and very nice person to be on yeah. the show, particularly early on when you really don't have a lot of credibility. And I still I'm only you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen episodes in, but. Chris was very nice to be on the show and he spent a lot of time with me. And, and I'm going to say something that might knock your socks off a little bit. It was even more difficult for me than you think because 
I had a, a cousin die of an opioid overdose. Oh, yeah. So not only am I listening to him give this history of how these drugs were put purposely into the hands of people who would be most susceptible to being addicted to them, um, but also the fact that they made money doing it, big money doing yeah, it. People yeah. made a lot of money to put these drugs into our streets and into our homes. Um, but it was particularly painful because, um, you know, I essentially know that um, these are the people who, um, whose product led to the death of someone I loved. So that was, that was a, a very difficult thing. Um, I will also, maybe I'll knock your socks off again. Um, because of my day job, I hear a lot of misery and yeah. I'm around it yeah. quite often. So maybe it doesn't quite have the psychological impact in short bursts the way it might for other people because I'm just around it all the time. I've sort of built up the idea that I'm going to hear something painful and then I just need to do my job, which is to, con to conduct an interview. I mean, when, when I've looked, you know, I've looked at literally uh, people who have lost loved ones hours before and interviewed yeah. them at length and built relationships with them that have, have stayed sometimes for weeks and years. Um, so maybe I'm just used to that, but it's interesting that you brought that up because it is a good reminder that sometimes the content that I am and that we are surrounded by is painful and yeah. can have lasting impacts. Um, so that's the answer to, to that, to that question Two <laughs> two, uh, two, two answers that maybe you weren't expecting. Um, uh, uh, if you could give the United States a do over, in one thing, what would it be? Well, obviously reconstruction. Yeah. I just think reconstruction and Jim Crow uh, are really the worst things that ever happened to, I mean, sla well, slavery is obviously the worst, worst thing, but, but uh, in terms of the, 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 America's already had slavery by the times the, the United States started. So reconstruction and, and, and Jim Crow is just, it, and, and this is another thing. It's like World War II and studying the Nazis and it's like studying Stalin. It's like studying Mao. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The more you, the more detail you get and you keep searching the hope for some light at the end of the tunnel, but just the, the sick hatred and hatred and the, the lynching of American servicemen who happen to be African-American coming off the trains in their little southern towns in their uniforms after World War II, in uniform, and getting lynched, it just, it just rips your heart out. Yeah. Um, that is painful. And also for me, um, when I think about the efforts that were made to keep people from voting. Yes. Yeah. That is particularly, um, it, it, it rips your soul out. It, it just, when you hear the stories of people who, um, uh, whatever it is, can you read the last sentence? Can you read, what is the last word in this sentence? And all these trick questions of what, uh, uh, how many jelly, be jelly beans are in this jar? And by the way, um, you need to have a sponsor, but yeah. the sponsor has to be a voter and the sponsor has to be, the sponsor can't sponsor more than one person. Um, what a horrific thing to go through and, and what a, a destructive, horrible thing that that, um, 
that, that we are still living with, the legacy yeah. of that we're oh, still yeah, living yeah. with. And, and I don't even know that it's a legacy because some certainly argue that it's going on right now. Well, and if you think, if you think about that as a Jim Crow phenomenon, it even goes well up to within living memory. I mean, the, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 has passed within my lifetime, barely within my lifetime, I was only two. But, you know, these things are very, very recent. And, and there's it, a fight going on over it right now. Over over right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, how many are we up to? What are, uh, what are we up to here? I have, I'm on question eight. Great. Eight. Okay. Who's up? Me or you? Uh, me. Me. Okay. Well, let, we've, we've talked about some very bracing things, but let me ask you some sort of more technical things, more to podcasting things. Have your guests recommended your podcast to other writers? And has this helped build your interview list and future episode list. I don't know that for sure. Yeah. But I do know that that after I started getting decent reviews on Twitter from people who had been guests on the show, yeah. that it suddenly got a little bit easier to book guests. That it suddenly, you know, the it suddenly got like, okay, I can see that this person has said this about the show. This is a credible person. I can go on the show. Right. Um and I think that might even be more important given when you start dealing with publicists because they don't really know you, they don't really, you know, they're not necessarily in the same community on Twitter on Twitter that I'm in. So when they go on to my profile and see, okay, this person said this about his show, this person said that about his show. Yeah. I can provide my author to him. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. I found that publicists, publishers, publicists and authors recommending authors have been, to, been a tremendous help. Yeah. Uh, I'll go here. Is there a type of question that you think is particularly effective during your interviews? Oh, um, I suppose the type of question that's particularly interview effective is the one that actually, after you have the, the person explain the background, the historical background of whatever their specialty is, the one question, however I phrase it or however it comes up in the discussion, that gets them to talk then about their contribution to the research and their specific work is the one that really makes the show because that's what they're that's what they're, they're the expert in you know this because you're you're interviewing experts on certain things and it, that's the tipping point and that's why i try to keep the uh, now try to keep the background part to five minutes and, oh, and, okay. and jump that's right into yeah. the stuff yeah yeah um, all right i have i have number another, nine or is this ten this, this is, nine. is nine i have another technical question you've sort of been answering this as we go along and i have been too but how has your broadcasting experience helped you starting help you start a podcast, especially from the technical side of things? And please provide us one funny story, one technical goof, one screw up, one you know I don't know blooper that you that you've had to deal with. Meaning in in my TV life, and both, both, and yeah. either okay, either or and everything. Um, I think, I think from a technical perspective, um, I knew how much work for the most part it would be. So I knew that, um, that it will take me this much editing and this much time because I spent so much time around it. But really the technical thing was I got to have a good mic and I have to know how to use the software, the editing software properly. Right. That, that was a big thing. But I've spent so much time around it that in some ways it's like breathing to me. I mean, picking out sound bites is something I pick out I mean, I pick out a dozen of them a day and I have been doing that for 15 years. So yeah. um, I think even more important than the technical side was how to interview people and 
how how questions uh, how to use questions to drive a discussion and to really get you know if 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 you were to see my preparation sheets i really do prepare in a very diligent fashion because i don't want to i can't go into an interview unprepared and yeah, particularly you're when you're interviewing when you when you're interviewing people who know as much as our guests know you don't want to sound stupid no, um, no, 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 to no, them. No. And, and, and our guests are just brilliant. I mean, the, one, the authors, you know, I, I said the other day to somebody I was interviewing, I was like, how do you, I mean, this was not during the show, this was after. I was like, how do you remember all this? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah how yeah, do yeah. you have this on? She said, well, you know, we're around it a lot. And we're, so I guess it's the sort of the same thing that we all have in our lives. But um, I'm just blown away by the brilliance of these authors and of how much they know and their, their contribution to scholarship. I mean, what geniuses they are. Truly, it is a blessing to be around them and to be given the right to interview them. And the fact that they care about it. They care yeah. about the fact that this is important information. This is, this is what people should know. Who's your dream guest? Uh, right now, my dream guest is Dr. Heather Cox Richardson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, uh, last year, uh, before her, her media career expanded dramatically i asked her to be on a show explaining the electoral college and then i screwed up the scheduling and i let balls drop and all kinds of other stuff so now she's become much too busy for me uh but i wanted i wanted her before the election uh but uh so so uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen uh but also because exactly what you say she's deep deep knowledge and also cares about the fact that this stuff matters and very media savvy. She's a brilliant, she's just a brilliant person. I mean, you know, I don't totally. know how to, you know, yeah. I don't know how to else to say it. Her letters to an American are popular for a very good reason. Yeah. I said to someone the other day, not only is she one of the most important historians, she's one of the most important intellectuals in the country. You know, yeah, I don't think there's any I don't, doubt. I, like, I don't like to put rankings on things, but she's certainly top five. You know, I, don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, can I, am I allowed to answer my own question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert Caro, uh, the author oh, of the yeah. Lyndon Johnson books. Um, yeah. My favorite author, always will be. But I, I don't want to interrupt him from work on volume five either. Yes, so. because he, he's so in-depth. It's just fabulous. So, and the writing is so good. Every sentence is so nice. Uh, okay, number 10, is this it? Okay, this is it. This is it. And it's a doozy. It's going to show your listeners what, what, what sort of nice and modest person you are. You're an Emmy Award winner. Oh, jeez. Why don't you mention that in your show description of the podcast website? I'm super jealous. Um, and by the way, Axel Bankers, the <laughs> Emmy that he won, it was about a story he did on a historical topic. Yeah. So it's My not Emmy because, is in history. My it's Emmy not is because history. of the hurricane of whatever. Okay. Um, the reason is because I don't get in. I didn't get into the to to the TV business to win Emmy awards. I didn't get in it to win awards. It's nice to win them. I submit for them sometimes. Um, it's just not. It's just not something that I need to fluff my feathers with. I, I would rather people say about a story that doesn't go viral and doesn't, um, you know, and doesn't. Uh, change the world. I would rather people say to me, boy, that was a really good story you did. Thank you. Um, no. To me, that is, you know, uh, I wrote one yesterday that went out yesterday and, and, and it's just about some pe- a teacher who was painting with some students, a mural in St. Petersburg. 
And um, I hope they like the story. Really, yeah. that, that, that's why I got into it is because I love writing and I love telling the stories. And I love, um, I guess a, a certain part of me enjoys being the sort of performer and going out. And I don't mean mm-hmm. performer that I'm making it up. I just mean the, you know, the, yeah. the act the of delivering presence. the news. Yeah. yeah, the on-camera. I like that part of it. And I sort of like the position that it puts you in a community um, or in a, in, in, a, in a, you know, in a neighborhood or in a, in a TV market. But, um, uh, and, I, and I don't mind having a profile. I like having a bit of a profile. But the Emmy thing, it was a nice moment. It, you know, it's great. But, you know, you can't get into the business to win Emmy awards. If they happen, it's great. Um, and I know people who have won 60 and 70 of them. I mean, and they're oh, brilliant okay. people. Um, but I, for me, I'd rather people say, you know, that guy's good reporter. Guy's a real good reporter. The story that he wrote was really, really good. And I'm really thankful that he spent time with our family to tell our family's story. To me, that that's all I need. That's all. Well, I that, need. That, that's a very good. That's a very good and heartening way to describe the the passion you put into your work. Well, I appreciate that. All right. Uh, here's my number ten. Uh, my number ten question: If in a thousand years, or whenever the next civilization takes right. over, right. and they are, uh, you know, they're in they're in some giant uh, uh, nation state that spans half the half the globe and whatever, and and the aliens are also here, and they're we're all hobnobbing <laughs> with them, and people are digging through. Uh, the remnants of the American civilization or of whatever civilization we're in right now. And they find a computer that is for whatever reason, queued up to professor buzzkills podcast Mm -hmm. and they press play. What do you want future civilizations to have said to say about your podcast? Well, that they loved it, that he should have gotten an Emmy, (laughs) (laughs) but more importantly that some of the things he's trying to get across and perhaps the most important one is that the great man theory, the great person theory, the great individual theory of history just isn't true and is damaging, right? Really should be part of really or at least was part of became part of the conversation eventually. And that details matter. Context matters. Complication matters. I've just, just getting into the weeds is not a waste of time. And I think that that's what we try to do. And I know you do because you, you interview your guests at length. And that this person obviously knew that and obviously thought that that would have some societal benefit. Hmm. So but That's I, what, that's still, what Professor Buzzkill's left behind. I'd still rather have an Emmy. And all the sweet, yeah. sweet cash that comes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, this has been... Just a pleasure. So much fun. Thank you for listening. Professor Buzzkill, you want to take us out? Yes. Thank you so much, all you Axel Mikers out there and, and Buzzkillers out there. This has been, this show is roughly an hour and it's the fastest hour I've ever spent because it's been so good and so interesting. And if you don't subscribe to either of our shows, you should subscribe to both. Absolutely. Well, that didn't come subscribe. out. Subscribe. Right. Yeah, subscribe to both. It was and, perfect. And rate us and review us on all, all the various platforms.